Well, it's really a joy to be with you tonight. It's a great privilege anytime you can gather with a group of believers, and the focus is good singing and focusing on the Bible, and it's a joy to be with you. Piano player slipped out, but I appreciated the piano playing. A week ago, we had our main pianist vacationing with her family in England. They're there for a month, um, and his her husband's one of our good deacons, and she plays the piano. And Joanne, my my daughter, Rob Pfeiffer's wife, uh, she also plays the second piano, and she's fills in when the main pianist isn't there. And they had to go to a funeral in Wisconsin, so we didn't have any piano players. And, uh, boy, I didn't realize how terribly we sing without the piano. It was awful. <laughs> I'm, I'm thankful for piano players, and uh, that helps a lot. Uh, it was a real joy to accept the invitation to come and uh, preach for you tonight. Um, I was born and raised in Detroit, so this uh, this is my stomping grounds. I went to, to high school, Cass Tech High, in downtown Detroit, and had a scholarship to Purdue University in electronics engineering. But in junior high, I knew God had called me to preach, so I turned down that scholarship and went to Maranatha Baptist Bible College. I'm glad I was. I did. I met my wife there, and uh, we spent six years there, my undergraduate and graduate degrees. And uh, then over these last 40 years, I've pastored in four churches, and it's been a real joy and a privilege. And um, I actually have a lot of points of interest and common with your church. Um, I know and love many of the uh, missionaries that you know and love and support. The uh, Nothing's happening there. Pastor, maybe maybe it cycled off. It was sitting there for quite a while. Ah, there we go. Uh, you support the Georges. My son Joel, who uh, traveled for six years with the Steve Pettit evangelistic team, spent a good part of a summer in India with the Georges, and he loves them. I've got a number of brass elephants and other artifacts he brought back that are on my shelf that remind me of his mission work with with uh, this fine missionary couple. The jewels, I've been on two mission trips to Sarkaba, and I've, I've laid, I don't know how many hundred of cinder block in two of their church buildings. And the second one was the building that, uh, uh, that Mike and Don have been using as their church building there. And um, I've stayed in their home. Uh, as I was going through your website, I saw the missions report from your trip, and and someone had commented upon the the rare water heater that was fastened right to the pipe. Was that was that you? Or I took a shower under that same spigot, brother. I know if you want a hot shower, you just let it trickle, and if you want a vibrant shower, shower is going to be cold. But uh, we we love the uh, jewels. I still get their emails every week, and I, I keep up with what they're doing, and, and I love those folks. Um, and then the McKinney's, uh, when I was at Sterling, uh, they uh, Brother McKinney was a deacon at Bible Baptist Church in in uh, well north of us there, and uh, 
And he got the call to go to preach and be a missionary. And our church at, at, uh, at Maranatha Baptist in Flint support him. While he was on deputation, he lived in our mission home. So when he was home, our church was his home church. So we, we love these folks. And uh, they're in a hard place now in Poland trying to get some stubborn Catholics saved. So we pray for them. And then Joyce Oshiro, she, of course, is based out of Inner City Baptist. Uh, my mom has been a longtime member at Inner City. In fact, for a long time, she was the receptionist and secretary there at the church. And uh, we didn't support uh, Joyce, but her dad, who was still doing missionary work when he was well into his 80s, we supported him and the work there in Okinawa. And he's still living. He's in, I think he's 94 now, and he's living in there in Okinawa. And then the Perez's, you know, I love the way Brother Archie talks. You know, he's got that really thick accent. And he, he always, when he would come to Sterling, and the First Baptist of Sterling, and he, he'd always, he had a certain way of saying Michigan. It would be Michigan. And, and I, I just crack up when I hear him talk. But they lived in our mission, or our, our prophet's chamber there in the church. And we were, that was when we were building the new auditorium. And he came to me and says, Pastor, what are you going to do with all those old pews and the pulpit furniture and everything that's in the old auditorium? He said, I don't know. We're, he said, can I have them? And I said, yeah, what are you going to do with them? I'll take them apart. We'll put them in our container and we'll ship them to Uruguay. So when you see pictures of his church, he's, he's got the only fundamental Baptist church in Uruguay that has padded pews. <laughs> and whenever I see pictures of their services, I see the pulpit from which I preached and the Lord's Supper table from which I commenced the Lord's table. And you know, I dispensed it and, and those pews that our people sat on. And so they're a real blessing and uh, it's a joy. And then we have a, I have a personal, very close connection with one of your former pastors of 25 years. Because Bob McLaughlin and the Albright family, the, the McLaughlin Albrights, once a year would have an Albright McLaughlin reunion. Because Bob's grandmother and my grandmother were next-door neighbors in Pennsylvania where they lived. And both families moved to Michigan to get jobs in the factories. And so every year, though we weren't related, we would have this Albright-McLaughlin reunion. I can recall Bob was a little older than I was, and he was going to, to, to Bible college when I was still probably junior high or high school. And I can remember that when we'd have these reunions, these picnics, um, they'd always call on Bob to pray because he was the up-and-coming preacher, you know, and he would do it right and say the right things. And, and so I, I always uh, remembered Bob in that way. And then when we were at Sterling, uh, there was a period of time, three, four years, a bunch of us preachers would meet once a month at the Star Restaurant. You know where that is? They have that great salad and he was trying to lose a lot of weight at that time, like I'm trying to lose a lot of weight now. And it, you just eat salad a lot. So, but uh, I, so I, I feel that affinity. I feel like I, I know you folks. Well, I want you to take your Bible tonight and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, the very first chapter. And I want to I speak to you this evening about the fact that God uses unlikely things for His glory. Uh, you know, we're designed to glorify God. That's why we were created. And God delights in using us for His glory. And God wants to use you. 
But often we short-circuit the blessing of God because we come up with a lot of excuses why God can't use me. I don't know enough. Or I'm too young. Or I'm too old. Or I haven't had the right training. Or I'm not qualified. Or someone else could do it a lot better. And we short-circuit the blessing of having God reach down and in His grace use us when we think, I don't have what it takes. I'm weak. I don't know enough. Um, And all of those false reasons for not serving God really melt away when we understand four very important truths from this text we're going to look at tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 31. We're going to focus on just two of the verses, but I want us to read the whole text so that we can kind of get a a background to it. And um, so... Let's uh, let's read the, the text, verses 20 through 31, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, beginning at verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Amen. Aren't you glad God saves those that believe? Verse 22, For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews it's a stumbling block. Under the Greeks it's foolishness. But unto them who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, even the things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are, in order that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus." who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Well, let's just have a word of prayer as we jump into this text. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you we can with confidence proclaim its meaning and know that it, it will instruct, instruct us, it will guide us. We can't go wrong by following it. Help us tonight to see these four ways that you will use us, ways that please you. Perhaps we've been using some things in our life as an excuse not to get involved, not to jump in and commit ourselves. I pray that tonight we would see these, these four wonderful ways that God uses unlikely things so that he can be glorified. And that's our purpose. We want to glorify you. We want to have lives that please you. So teach us tonight from this wonderful passage. We ask for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. Well, in this text, we see a number of important truths. In verse 21, we read that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Uh, God looks at all the wisdom of this world and he sees right through all its falsehood and its foolishness. In verse 24, we're, we're told this truth, that to the believer, the gospel of Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in verse 3, he kind of uses some logic and hooks it all together. And he says, what the world labels as foolish, worthless, weak, is actually wiser and stronger. Because God, it pleases God to use unlikely things, weak things, uh, things that are labeled as foolish by the world to bring glory to him. So our text is verses 27, 28, and 29. That's where we're going to focus tonight. God wants to, and He can, and He will use you despite all the reasons you could give why He can't use you. And when our, we're, we're the weakest and we feel the most unqualified, God at that point is ready to use us in a great way for His glory. So, let's learn these four things. First thing I want you to note is that God delights in using those with unshaped potential. He doesn't wait until we have all the answers. He doesn't wait till we get real smart. He doesn't wait till we have a lot of experience. He wants to use us when we have to be completely dependent upon Him. Now, we know a lot of Bible examples. Can you think of some Bible examples of people who thought they weren't qualified, couldn't be used, and God says, forget it, I want to use you anyway? Can you think of some Bible examples of God using people who thought, I'm not smart enough, I'm too weak, I can't be used? Moses, yes. He said, I've been tending sheep for 40 years out here in the wilderness, and I'm kind of a vagabond. I'm trying to keep away from people, and you're telling me I have to go back to millions of people and bring them out of bondage and face one of the mightiest nations that was on the earth at that time. The guy says, yes, you need to depend upon me, and I'll work through you, and I'll do that. Any other Bible characters come? Yes. I say many of the prophets, God gave them huge assignments as like, how can I do? I think of David, a little shepherd boy, and here's this Goliath. And all the people that have the equipment and have trained with their weaponry, they're all chicken to go up against Goliath. And here's little David, a little shepherd teenager. He says he's ruddy, of a fair countenance. He comes and says, how dare that giant defy the, 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 the true God of Israel? And God used little things. He used a stone and a sling and the faith of a teenager. I think of Gideon. You know, we go through the judges. And when God called Gideon, he said, wait a minute, I'm I'm from the smallest tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, and we're the least in number. And our family, we're like not one of the prominent families in Benjamin. And in fact, I'm one of the youngest kids in the family. Why are you calling on me? I'm not qualified. I'm young. I don't have experience. I can't do this. And God said, oh, yes, you can. Because... I'm going to empower you to do things that will defy the logic of the world going against hundreds of thousands of soldiers with 300 men and blowing trumpets. 
So we, we see that God delights in using those with unshaped potential. They haven't arrived. They haven't had any experience. I want you to notice the word that's used here. Look at verse uh, 27. It says, but God hath chosen the foolish things. The word foolish is the Greek word moros. We get our word moron from it. I don't want you to think it's a negative term because in the scripture here it's not meant as a negative term. It just means that in the eyes of the world, what we believe and what we teach and what we think doesn't measure up to their standards. They look at it as moronic. Have you ever gotten in a debate with someone on creation and evolution and they look at us like, you are absolutely stupid to believe that there was an original couple that God created and that there's a young earth and in six days he made everything. He says, you are a moron. That's the way the world looks at it. But who's right about this? We're right. And the world is foolish. Uh, we, uh, we think about a lot of different issues where the political correctness of our day says this is what is the right way. And we look at it and say that defies every biblical principle God teaches us exactly the opposite. So we're going to stick with God, and they call us morons, foolish. And God is going to use the foolishness that this world labels as moronic, and he's going to use it for his glory. Remember Jesus' disciples, they were preaching in the power of the gospel. People were being saved, and there was this huge movement. And the religious leaders said, what's going on here? These people are unlearned and ignorant men. Now, they didn't mean that they were mentally retarded or stupid, because they weren't. What they meant was they haven't, they haven't ascended to the level of training that we have had, which has steeped us in foolishness. And they are depending upon the knowledge of God. And they called that unlearned. It's the word uh, agramatos in that middle of that word is the word grammar and the word actually means unlettered it means you haven't gone to our rabbinical schools you don't have the thing hanging on your wall that says you're a really smart person i know a lot of people who have doctor's degrees and are very unwise moronic because they've rejected the truth of god's word it says unlearned and ignorant man. The ignorant, the word Greek word ignorant there is idiotes. You ever call anybody an idiot? Our English word comes from that Greek word, idiot. And then, so these people are looking at the disciples who are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel power, the power to save that that Paul talks about in Romans chapter one. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. And the world labeled that as idiotic, moronic. Well, this foolishness, the world labels what we believe as foolishness, says that that is going to confound the wise. The word confound there means to shame down or embarrass. So someone who hasn't been trained in the philosophy of secular humanism and hasn't bought into the political correctness of our culture by their very wisdom of following the Scriptures, is going to be able to embarrass and shame down the people who are the smartest of the secular humanists. And it pleases God to use simple folks who believe 
the word to completely destroy the logic of those who are in the world, who look at us as being moronic, to confound the wise. See, God and you do make a majority. And little is much when God is in it. So you might say, well, I don't know very much. Or I, I, I guess... I, I, I'm not. I'm not much. I don't have much to offer. There's so much I don't know. Well, you know what? God can use you mightily if you just get rid of the con, get get a hold of the concept that God delights in using those with unshaped potential. You young people. You don't have to have anybody put you down like you don't know the stuff to be successful because. If you're reading your Bible and you're reading the Proverbs and you're, you're adopting the mentality of God from the Bible, you're going to be a whole lot smarter than your peers. You stick with that. Because God delights in using those with unshaped potential. Well, let's notice a second truth. We find it in that same verse. And it is that God delights in using those who are feeble. Look at the last part of verse 7. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. The Greek word here for weak is the word osthelos. Perhaps your pastor has taught you a little bit about how Greek words work. You take a root word and you can add prefixes and suffixes and it changes the meaning of the word. And often when you see a word that starts with the Greek letter alpha, which is the equivalent to our A, the first letter of the alphabet, it makes the word the negative or the opposite of. A simple word we understand is you take the word atheist. You know that the root word is theist or God, and atheist means no God or against God or there isn't a God. So, what is the root word here? The word, word, root word is thaleo, which means vigor or strength or might. Three times a week I work out at the Pearson Road YMCA, north side of Flint. And I do 45 minutes on the elliptical. I do some of the machines and I swim 18 laps. You say, Pastor, if you do all that three times a week, why aren't you trim and fit and thin? Well, I'm 60, and it's just hard to not be fat when you're 60. Then if I weren't doing that three times a week, I don't know what I would be. But Also, I do. I get about 5.30 in the morning, and I do that. It takes a couple of hours, three times a week, and I, I go there. And also working out there are these super jocks these 20-something young men with rippling abs and muscles all over the place, not one bit of fat on them. And they go to the part of the, the gym where there's all the free weights, and they're lifting this bar that has like four or five of these huge discs on it. When they lift it up, the bar bends. And I thought, I can't even lift the bar. And then also there's about three or four guys that are recruiters at the Army recruiting station, and they're very trim and very, very muscular and very fit, and they're working out. And when I see what they do, they're that, they're that Greek word, strength, mighty. And what I am is the opposite of that. I am the ah-mighty. 
the not mighty or the opposite of mighty. And that's the word here. Uh, uh, the opposite of strength. And you might say, Pastor, that's what I am. I, I can't do what I used to do. I'm kind of feeble. I walk with a cane or walk in a motorized wheelchair. I have a sister who's paralyzed. She was in a, an accident 30 years ago, and she, she can't walk. And she goes around in a motorized wheelchair. And she would be like the epitome of no strength. And you know what? It pleases God to reach down and use people who would say, I don't have strength. I don't have the ability. I can't do this. Uh, God delights in using uh, you say, well, I'm too weak, I'm, I'm handicapped, I'm too feeble, I'm not strong enough. God delights in using you in, in, in very special ways that would defy the wisdom of the world. And it says that he's going to confound the things that are mighty. I want you to turn to another passage of Scripture. I want you to note Paul's comments about his thorn in the flesh. You're familiar with this text. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through 10. And, and the, his words will jump out at you having laid the foundwork for this idea that God delights in using weakness for his glory. Verses 7 to 10. And lest I, Paul's writing, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. Some people think it was eyesight. Some people think it was a constant uh, reinfection of malaria. Some people think there was some other ailment. But whatever it was, it was something that was he felt was hindering his effectiveness and he was asking God to remove it. The messenger of Satan gave it to me to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God delights in using weakness for His glory. Don't use that as an excuse not to serve God. You don't say, well, I can't because I'm limited. I can't do this. I can't do that. Because God delights. He says, I'm strongest when you will depend upon me when you are weak. We are all, at best, a bundle of flaws. I mean, say that. I am a bundle of flaws. I am a bundle of flaws. And those of you who are married here today, your spouse would say, yes, amen, I know that. For my spouse, that is. We are at best a bundle of flaws. There's really no reason why any of us would be able to do anything in our own strength for God. But God, when we surrender our weaknesses to Him, is pleased to make that turn into something very strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. 
in that weakened and infirm condition, God can do things through us for His glory. When I attended Maranatha Baptist Bible College back in the 70s, we had one day at chapel, we had wonderful chapel sermons and preachers from all over the country would come and preach. And We had a special speaker one time, none of us had ever heard of him. And to this day, I can't tell you what his name is. He only spoke that one time. But he made a profound impact on all of us because this preacher, this evangelist, had cerebral palsy. He had to be wheeled to the pulpit in his wheelchair with his arms going every which direction uncontrollably with his face contorted in all kinds of strange things that the muscles of his face were doing without him being in control. And he would be helped up to the pulpit where he would hang on to the pulpit and he preached with a very halted speech having to think very hard on every word that would come out. I don't know how long the message would have been if a regular preacher had preached it in a regular delivery rate. Maybe it would only have been about a 10-minute message. But he took 45 minutes to preach on the grace of God. From a man who for every intent and purpose had an excuse to say, God can't use me in the ministry and I would never be able to preach. And when that service was over, the guys were asking the gals, do you have any extra Kleenex? <laughs> Wasn't a dry eye in the place. And as a result of that one chapel service, there were young men, especially who went forward and said, I don't have any excuse any longer not to surrender for God to use me to preach. You see, we use our weaknesses as an excuse not to do what God can use us mightily for if we depend upon His grace. And this principle that He's teaching us here in this uh, 27th verse of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, is that God delights in using weak things, the things that have no strength for His glory. And you all know the verse, Philippians 4.13. Say it with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Glory. No excuses for being weak, for having raw potential that hasn't been developed yet because God delights in using people like that. Let's move on to the third truth I want us to notice. It's in the next verse, in verse 28. And that is that God delights in using those with no background, no reputation, no past experience. No mentoring by people who have prepared the way for us. And it uses the word base. You know, sometimes people read this text and say, I don't get this. What does it mean, the base things? God uses the base things of the world. And in the phrasing here, he lumps two of them together. And the ending phrase is, the base things of this world, which are not to bring the, not the things that are. What is this? What are these base things? And it's the Greek word 
uh, ah, genus. There's that A letter again. And the root word is genus, from which we get our word genes. And it means no genes, no father and mother, no heritage, no background. Sometimes people come to me and say, uh, Pastor Albright, was your dad a preacher? I said, no, he wasn't. He was a welder. My boys, my two sons, Jonathan and Joel, are both pastors. That's a joy to my heart. They didn't have to be pastors. They could have been something else, and that would have been fine. But it's a real joy to have two sons who are pastoring. Our son Joel pastors, uh, his assistant pastor at First Baptist Church of St. Francis, Minnesota. Great church, a great pastor, growing church, Christian school. He's as active as could be, and they love it there. We're glad they're in their church. Our son Jonathan is helping the Gawkin team with the church plant in Salt Lake City. I don't know if you heard about the church plant there. It's marvelous what's happening. They haven't been in existence one year yet, and they're running 130. This is in Salt Lake City. They're, they're already starting to plan two other churches in the area and get some satellite churches going from that. And it's a joy when I talk, I call all my kids Monday. It takes me most of the morning Monday to call all my kids and just chat with them, see how their Sundays went with the boys, see how their ministry went. Our son Jonathan, he's in charge of music and the worship and also all the campus ministry, University of Utah, 60,000 students. The very first service that they had out there, the vice president of the student body attended and says, I'm saved and I've been praying that God would bring a good Bible preaching church to this area. Is there anything I can do to help you? Jonathan said, well, I'm kind of in charge of the campus ministry. want to get something started on the University of Utah. He said, well, let me have you next week. We'll have lunch with the president. The president is a Mormon, as you would think understand but a progressive mormon he said i've been he didn't say i've been praying for maybe he was praying for but he wasn't praying to the god i know but he he says i i've been wanting to expand and diversify because there's too much mormon stuff on campus we need some other stuff what can i do for you we'll give you an office we'll uh give you a table in the student center where all the students congregate bowl and play pool and have the snack shops and and uh, you need probably need some place for Bible studies and stuff like that. We'll set you up. They're now a recognized alternate group uh, Gospel Grace Campus Fellowship recognized by the University of Utah. They prepared for this incoming class. They prepared 4,000 backpacks with the church logo on it and filled with stuff that businessmen had have given that students would love to have. And the university gave them permission to run the orientation classes for all the incoming freshmen to let them learn about the, the railway system and the bus system in Salt Lake City and run two hour-long training sessions on relationships, especially with the married students, because they've discovered the married students coming from overseas, foreign students, coming to Utah and being in the States and going to university puts a strain on their marriage, and they end up getting divorced after a few years. 
So they have free reign to preach the gospel. You need a relationship. You need a relationship with God. It's only through Christ. And here's how we can help you. And here's a great church you can come to. We'll help you and your family. And guys, I say all that to say I'm excited that my sons are in the ministry. And they could answer that question, was your dad a preacher? And they say, well, yeah, he was. And we're preachers. But when people ask me that question, my dad was a welder. He worked for 40 years in a welding shop, heavy machine welding. Worked real hard. He was a, faith, he was a good Christian, a faithful dad, sang in the choir, was at church every Sunday. But he was a welder. And I can say that my heritage of preaching the gospel, I have no genes. There's no background. There wasn't, it wasn't handed to me. I didn't grow up in seeing a dad preach and saying, okay, now you, you take over for me. You know what? I don't know what your backgrounds are, but you can, by grace, have, the, have your life punctuated by the Son of God who can save you and redeem you, and you can be the start of a great heritage, no matter what your background is. You can be the beginning, because it pleases God to reach down and use people that are of no reputation that don't have a background, that are odd genus. And that is going to bring to naught, bring to nothing the things that are. All the things the world puts out there, you can approach that with the power of the gospel, with no background and no training and no reputation, and you can defeat them, you can overthrow them, you can make their logic come to nothing. You know, you're in great reputation if that's what it is, because what does it say in Philippians 2, 7, and 8 about our Savior? And Jesus emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. He made himself of no reputation. The Son of God did that. No genus. No reputation. He went to Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You're a carpenter, aren't you? Isn't this the son of the carpenter? The nothing person? Mighty things that can be done when we realize God is pleased to use things of no reputation. And then our last point. uh, God delights in using those who are thought to be of no value. Worthless, throw away. That's not worth anything. Throw it away. We have a good friend of ours that attends uh, Inner City Baptist Church. Uh, you know Sid and Cindy Van Houten. They're soon going to be on. Uh, you'll be able to watch it. They're on the. Uh, they were chosen to be on this road show, antique road show. It came to this area, and Sid found this old. I don't know, Indian or something that he got from his great-grandfather and took it. They're sworn to secrecy. They had to sign a contract that they would not tell how it worked out. But he was chosen. He had to go to the makeup room, and they were, he was one of the guys that sits down there, and the guy interviews him and tells him what it's worth. And it's like this old beat-up thing that he found in his attic. That, and I don't know, maybe it's worthless, but I kind of got the idea that it's worth a lot. So often we look at stuff and say it's junk. It's throwaway. And in God's eyes, it can be very valuable. 
And, and it pleases God to take things that we think are of no value and use it in a great, great way. No value. Uh, it uses the term despised, exothenio. It means contemptible or the lowest rating. It's like that's not worth anything. It's like throw it away. It's junk. And it pleases God to use that which the world rates as not anything of value. It uses the phrase, the things that are not. On the world's standard, it's the things that are not. It's worthless. It doesn't even have a value. To completely negate the things that are. In closing, I want you to look at one more verse. Uh to illustrate this idea of God using things of no value. And it's 2 Corinthians again. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. We'll look at verses 6 and 7. Look what it says. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. In the verse, I skipped verse 6, the verse before that, God, he's commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and he's shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is the treasure. What is the treasure that he's put in earthen vessels? It is this power of the gospel. It's the light of the good news that Jesus can save and transform your life and give absolute value to a life that would have been worthless without Christ. Um, Not of ourselves. Verse 6, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's the gospel, the power of the gospel. And this treasure, this gospel, it says, is in earthly vessels. Literally, it's in clay pots. Now, the Jews had a practice. The Romans were always coming in and taking their stuff. And the the Jews had a practice of hiding their precious things, their valuables, gold, silver, jewelry, gems. They would hide them in clay pots because it was the most unlikely place for the Romans to think there would be anything of value. Now, I I don't want to get grotesque or, or anything here, but... Think, just think about clay pot for a second. What was the clay pot for? Okay, well, you use more descriptive terms. I would have said just think of a chamber pot or, a, you know. So here, here's this thing. You know, the Bible tells us in, you know, 1 Corinthians that, that God uses some vessels of honor and some vessels of dishonor, but he uses us all together. Clay pots for one of the most despicable things it could be used for. And the Jews were taking those clay pots and hiding their precious things in them so the Romans wouldn't find them. And Paul is using this as an illustration to say the riches of the glory of Christ... The gospel of the good news is deposited deposited into us. And you know what we are? We are clay pots. And it pleases God to reach down and take a clay pot 
that is worthless, despicable, and it's of great, great value because of what has been entrusted to that person. Now, reread those verses now. Verse 6 and 7, God, we're in 2 Corinthians 4, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But we have this treasure, this gospel, this transforming work of God in our hearts. We have this treasure that's in earthly vessels, that's in us. Why? Why? The word that in the Greek would be in order that. The Henoclos. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Why does God put this very precious thing in us who are worthless? In order that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Never forget that we're just a clay pot. And if we will come to God as a clay pot and say, God, I'm here for you to use the treasures and value of the gospel will come to light. And guess who gets the glory? Not us. God gets the glory. That's why He put us here. So let's not make the mistake of using the common excuses, I don't know enough. I don't have the right background. I'm weak. I'm just a clay pot. God is glorified when we come to Him in that weakness and say, here I am, use me. And when He does, great things happen and God gets the glory. Wow. You may be a new Christian. I don't know you folks. There might be some new converts. We have a number of new converts in Flint. Uh, Your pastor was referring to the fact that we're in a place nobody likes to vacation to. One in five homes is vacant. That means that you can drive down the street and look through it. The aluminum has been stripped off the outside. The doors are gone. The windows are gone. The copper is gone. It's stripped out. looks like a war zone. Murders all over. It's the murder capital. We have more murders than Chicago, more murders than Detroit. Three weeks, four weeks ago, our Bible school, our, we, my wife and I canvassed the two streets up and down either side of our church. And we had another couple that was with us, and they did one side, we did the other side, and we had a very extensive form. Pastor Rob designed the form, a very techie thing. And, you know, you got to check little boxes. was... Were they home? Did you leave literature at the door? Was there a partial gospel presentation or a complete gospel presentation? Did they let you in? And then we would know how to follow up and what was going on. And a particular house that we came to, the particular number, it said partial gospel presentation by our partners. And the week after we were there, the 13-year-old boy shot and killed his brother and her, his girlfriend. We've had our air conditioning units ripped off from the church. $6,000 worth of value to us and about $35 they got for the copper for drugs. 
great inconvenience. A month ago, we had a young man who came in the church. He was there early. He sat down and says, I'm waiting for Sunday school. And all of a sudden, he was gone. He disappeared. His bike was still there. And it's about a 15-year-old. And later, we discovered he had been wandering all through our building. He had talked to nursery personnel. He had talked, walked by some of the Sunday school classes. Some of our ladies had talked to him. You know, what's your name? What are you doing? He was casing our building. And later that afternoon, Pastor Rob found out his computer was missing. He was in the office. It was plugged in. It was what we record our services off of. And he took the computer, set it outside the door, left the building, got his bike, and took the computer. We were pretty sure we knew who he was. Gave us a name. We hunted down Facebook. You know, people are dumb. They put everything on Facebook. So you just get on Facebook. You can find out a lot about people. So we pretty knew. We, if this guy comes back, we're gonna. Well, about two weeks later, he came back. Aha! Okay, we assigned some guys to watch him and trail him. And uh, he, he. I think he got the idea. We were watching him really close, and finally he said, "I need to borrow a phone." I mean, they make a phone call, and then he was out of there. You probably called the drug guy that told him, go to that church, rip off something, and then we'll give you drugs. That's where we, that's what we live in. Nobody's married. Nobody is married. Welfare community. There's a mom and five kids, all different dads, and no dads are there. God's put us there to be light. We've had things happen like, a couple that's been living together for seven years, they've got two kids, and she's got three kids by a previous two relationships, and they get saved. Okay, now what do we do? They say, we, we, what's the next step? Do we need to be baptized? Well, that's great. We'll baptize you, become members, and the next week we discipline you for living together and out of wedlock. It's like, we've got to go about this in a certain order. I said, would you be willing to take marriage counseling Get and Pursue getting married. Well, yes. Is that what God wants us to do? (laughs) Yes. We put the marriage counseling on a fast track, and two and a half weeks later, I said, you know, it costs you about 50 bucks to have a wedding. Get a ring. Marriage license is 15 bucks, and I'll perform the ceremony for nothing, and some ladies will make a cake, and my daughter will take pictures. In fact, the church family was saying they they have a joke. It's wedding in a week. They're going to form a new organization, wedding in a week. I wasn't going to have it a church wedding. I mean, I, I, in all my 40 years of ministry, I, I've got certain scruples about who am I going to marry. It's like, this is a mess. And they said, Pastor, this is different than just getting a marriage license and going to a justice of the peace, isn't it? This is like a promise we're making to God and to our new church family. Can we invite the church family to come to our little ceremony that you're going to perform? I said, well, yeah, you want them there? Yeah, they need to hold us accountable. So all of a sudden I think, man, there's, there's so much right and biblical about this. I better do this. The entire church family came. And the very next morning, I baptized them. And they're members of Maranatha Baptist Church. And I disciple Chris, the husband, every Friday for two hours. And Joanne is discipling the wife. And they're learning all kinds of stuff. And they're bringing all kinds of visitors. And that's what God has called us to there. Primitive mission work in a culture that's not what we're used to. And God uses little things, things we didn't think that had no value, and it pleases Him and He's glorified when we submit to that. So, the last I've got to finish. 
but here, here's why God uses unshaped potential, weak, feeble things, those who, with no background, those who are deemed of no value. Here's the four words. So he gets the glory. Hallelujah. God gets the glory. When we go ahead and surrender, when we think I'm too weak, don't know enough, don't have a background, God will use me. Now, as we close, no more notes. I'm done preaching. But I I do want you to apply some things to your heart. Maybe you've been using some things in your life as an excuse not to get involved for God. And maybe some of these excuses are the ones you've been using. You know, somebody else could do it better. I haven't had training. Uh, I don't have any background. I'm just a new Christian. Um, I've got a lot of weaknesses. I'm, I'm handicapped in a lot of ways. Not as severely as the cerebral palsy preacher. And God will always be glorified. He will get the glory when we say, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And when I am weak, then I am strong. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let me encourage you, if you're a young person, an older person, you have some inabilities, surrender yourself to God and you'll be surprised how God will use you in a mighty way and he will be glorified. People will look at that and say, there's no way that person could have done this. There's no way they have the ability to do what just happened. But God is pleased to use weak things so he's glorified. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd work in all of our hearts to realize how wonderful it is that though we are clay pots and worthless, you have put within us that which is a treasure, that which is of great value, And it pleases you to use us when we come in a weakened condition with inabilities and fears and say, Lord, use me for your glory. May even this week, the rest of this week toward the Lord's Day, we have opportunities to shine for Christ and let the treasure of the gospel that's within us shine to people who need the transforming power of your word in their life. Use us. Encourage us. Give us enthusiasm and courage and assurance and confidence to let our light shine knowing that when we do, you're going to get the glory. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.